Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And next week is a day, a date, that for years we celebrated as the anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade. This year, last year, well, after the Supreme Court reversed and reneged on its promise of Roe versus Wade, not so much. But there is hope. There is hope. And we have with us today to talk about Roe, Professor Felicia Kornblue, who is a professor of history an affiliated faculty member in gender, sexuality, and women's studies, and in Jewish studies as well at the University of Vermont. She's the author of a number of books, including most recently the just-released paperback edition of A Woman's Life is a Human Life. A Woman's Life is a Human Life. My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. Professor Kornbluh, thank you so much for being back on our show with us. We really appreciate you taking your t- taking the time today. I'd like to know from you, what are the lessons that you take from the fight that your mother was engaged in originally, which resulted in the New York State Legislature passing a law protecting abortion three years before the Supreme Court decided Roe? Here we are again with the Supreme Court having said, kind of, this issue goes back to the states. What are the lessons learned then that are relevant now? Well, first, I want to thank you for doing this program. I think it's so important for us to remember. I don't even know whether to call it an anniversary anymore, if that's the right word. You know, but this time, um, it's a time to really think about these issues about reproductive rights and reproductive justice and what Roe meant and also what's coming ahead of us, you know, in 2024 and beyond. And I think the biggest lesson that I take from the campaign that my mom was involved in is that it really was possible for them to change the law. And I look particularly at what what they did in New York, um, not because I only care about New York, but because it was the beginning of something, right? It was the beginning of a really aggressive feminist national campaign And it was that campaign that actually produced Roe versus Wade. You know, Roe, it's a complicated piece of constitutional doctrine and the Supreme Court, you know, speaks in their Supreme Court language in that case. But really, the Supreme Court felt compelled to do something in response to this massive national grassroots campaign. And so I think we learn, even though, even though Supreme Court justices and, you know, people in very elite forms of power, they always say that they're not subject to pressure. They are. They really are subject to to pressure and to grassroots demand and popular opinion. And that was true in the late 60s into the early 70s. It produced Roe versus Wade, which is kind of of a high watermark for constitutional recognition of women's rights, gender rights. And it can happen today just as much. Well, I would like to know your perspective and ask you to dig a bit deeper into that because there is this adage that the Supreme Court, at least going back years, the Supreme Court follows the election returns. Well, not so much. This Supreme Court decision has been rejected numerous times now. They completely misread the country with regard to how the country feels about Roe. And I think we're very surprised to find out that the country is not overwhelmingly evangelical, Christian, anti-reproductive choice, and so on. Not, and they don't care. So how does this organizing effort that you 
write about in your book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life. How does that, or the lessons from that organizing effort years ago, how do you think it plays out today? Well, I think that's a really fair question. And I would say two things. One, it actually is making a difference. You might not see it. You might not hear it in the claims of a Justice Alito or a Justice Thomas, right? But inside the conversations that are happening within the Supreme Court, it has made a difference. And there are people who are a little bit more moderate than Justice Alito and Justice Thomas. That doesn't take much. Which doesn't take much, exactly, exactly. Um, Who actually, they don't want to be wildly, wildly out of step with popular opinion. So you can maybe only see it at the margins, like they're gonna decide this case, this term about mifepristone, right? Which is one of the two drugs that's used in medication abortion. Very, very, very important, right? Um, they've already ruled out the possibility that they're gonna just take it off the market, right? That they were asked to do that by some conservative wackos um, <laughs> uh, in Texas, right? And there was a judge in Texas who said that the the um, FDA approval for one of those two drugs, mifepristone, should should just be revoked. The Supreme Court has already said we will not revoke it, right? I think that's very significant. I think that if there hadn't been so much pushback at the at the local and state level, and there hadn't been state level referendums, referenda, and constitutional protection, new constitutional protection for reproductive rights, I think they might have gone. Uh, in line with that Texas judge. And they might have said, okay, we're gonna consider actually revoking the approval for this drug. But they they are not gonna do that. They are gonna consider certain kinds of restrictions, which they think of as being sort of moderate. And they're, you know, they're not really moderate. They would be very consequential. Um, so it's not like we need to, it's not like we can back off, you know, and just say, oh yeah, we had our, you know, grassroots had their effect. No, certainly this is a campaign that we need to keep on fighting and keep on waging. Um, but I think we can say that it has had an impact um, and that we're seeing it even in the conservative, conservative Supreme Court that we have today. Um, and then just quickly, the second thing I'll say is that I think we have to understand that they have deliberately created institutions to insulate themselves from popular pressure. That's what they've tried to do since the 60s and 70s, right? That's what the Federalist Society that people may have heard about is all about. It's about creating a little cocoon around people like Justice Clarence Thomas, who's been taking all this money from these hard right conservatives, right? So that they won't be subject to popular pressure. Um, and those are institutions we need to understand and we need to keep challenging them as well. Can we talk a bit more about the case that's at the Supreme Court this term? Because one of the uh, decisions the Supreme Court could make is, well, okay, you can have these uh, 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 these drugs available for uh, abortion, um, but you can't mail them across state lines. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that this Supreme Court can say, hey, congratulations to us. We forced, uh, I don't know, a few hundred thousand women this uh, year to give birth um, or to have an illegal abortion um, or to spend thousands of dollars to get an abortion, all sorts of ways they can interfere with reproductive rights. So, yes, I don't think that the Supreme Court is apt to say that the FDA could's approval is revoked here. The Supreme Court, we are supreme, so we'll do it. But on the other hand, they can do an awful lot of damage sounding semi-reasonable. Your thoughts on that? It can do a lot of damage. And there is the possibility. So there is a 19th century law called the Comstock Act 
which very unfortunately, when Democrats had uh, congressional majorities, they did not repeal. They failed to repeal this 19th century law. And so the 19th century law is still on the books that says that you cannot mail um, things that are considered quote unquote pornographic or quote unquote abortifacients across state lines. And right now under the Biden administration, that is not being enforced. It's not being enforced against these medications that are used for safe, legal medication abortion, right? Under a Trump administration, we don't know what might happen, um, whether that Comstock Act would start to be enforced. Uh, and we also don't know whether the Supreme Court might have something to say about an interpretation of that Comstock Act that might apply. Um, I don't, I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to offer a, a rigid interpretation of that that would say that the post office must interfere with people receiving these medications, but that certainly is a possibility. And that's the, that's the thing that could happen, you know, beyond the overturning of Roe versus Wade. That could be, you know, the next really, really bad shoe that could drop. So that's something that we need to pay attention to. We need to talk to, you know, everybody needs to be communicating with your congressional representatives, everybody needs to be, you know, talking and learning about this Comstock Act and doing what we can to push back. So, <clears throat> Professor Kornblum, uh, I appreciate you saying that a question that I just asked you was fair. I have one for you that I know is unfair. Uh, when this case goes to the Supreme Court, at, it's at the Supreme Court, when the Supreme Court decides this case, the Mifepristone case, this term, uh, there are three uh, progressive judges, justices, who are going to say, no, the, uh, this, this, this challenge should fail. There's going to be Chief Justice uh, Roberts, who widely reported did not want to reverse Roe, wanted to uh, affirm the 15-week uh, ban, but uh, did not want to go as far as the right-wing just justices that control, who control the court. But here's the unfair question. Who's the fifth vote? Uh, the fifth vote to, to not to, invoke the contract? Yes, and to not and to not uh, uh, rule that medication abortion against state going medication across state lines is illegal and or it can be banned by those receiving states. Um, well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I said it was unfair. I, I at least admitted that. I really don't know. Um, you know, I'm not a prognosticator about the court, but um, but I do think that there, you know, there are three justices, two two to three, <laughs> depending on the issue in the case, who are not dramatically hard right and who are also not liberals, and I think that um, I think the idea of invoking this very rigid 19th century law, which you know, for decades was kind of a figure of ridicule in American culture because it was seen to be, you know, associated with a kind of censorious, Victorian, you know, really old-fashioned way of understanding the world. Like, I, I, I find it hard to believe that anyone who's been, you know, educated um, in mainstream American institutions in the last 20 years would you know, would would want to be exercising that kind of authority, would want the federal government to be really actively interfering by, you know, using the power of the post office to open people's mail and open their Amazon packages, 
you know, or their unmarked packages that are coming from um, organizations like Plan C, which um, which helps people access medication abortion. Like it's it it even in the, even in the current climate, even with the current court that we now understand is this very political, very very um, heavily weighted conservative institution. It's hard for me to actually see them. Um, actively enforcing it. Now, you know, if there's another Trump administration, I think that's a different story. Uh, Professor uh, Felicia Cornblue, the title of your book is A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. Could you take a minute and share with us what the arc of the story is? Yeah, so I start the story in the 1960s and talk about the earliest efforts to reform or repeal the abortion laws. And one of the interesting things about this, um, which Justice Alito tried to dodge in his Dobbs opinion in 2022, is that for generations, there was no, there was no real um, regulation or law around abortion in the United States. There was common law, which came from England, um, but there was no state law. There were, there were no criminal penalties for abortion. Those only came into being in the 19th century, right? So the people I write about where I pick up in the 1960s is they're trying to undo what was done in the 19th century. They're trying to decriminalize things that were criminalized in the 19th century, you know, mainly the, the provision of abortion by doctors. Um, so they have, they have a, a first set of kind of feeble attempts to reform the abortion laws, and then very, very quickly becomes a mass movement. It becomes allied with the feminist movement, and then they start to win. They win major victories around the country at the state level and the legislative level, right? And then they, and that, that um, provides the groundwork ultimately for Roe versus Wade. So that's the first piece of the story. And then I talk about after Roe and um, there were two things going on. One is that there was all this pressure to tear down the rights in Roe, but then there also was a new movement largely of um, people of the left, socialist feminists and, um, and women of color who were trying to expand the agenda to go beyond abortion rights and beyond Roe to give us a new menu of rights. And that's become a more common cry today, even though the politics are really rough, which is how can we go beyond Roe? to get what we really want and what people really need in order to exercise their full reproductive choices. So you've drawn a distinction between what you prognosticate as being the result of the Supreme Court decision this term and the potential for a Trump administration in uh, 2025. How bad do you think things would be if Trump were elected? And do you think that abortion and reproductive rights, in fact, will play a huge part, and perhaps a determinative part, in this presidential election. I think reproductive rights are absolutely at the heart of what we're talking about this year and what this election is about. And I know that people have a lot of reservations about the National Democratic Administration. I, you know, um, I'm not trying to talk anybody out of your reservations. I'm just trying to remind everybody that um, abortion rights and other reproductive rights and justice are you know, on the ballot like they never have been before. And um, and we need a baseline of reproductive rights, human rights, um, in order to get um, any more reproductive justice beyond that, right? Anything beyond what Roe secured is only going to come if we're in a context in which we can at least have those basic um, reproductive rights, access to safe, legal, somewhat affordable um, abortion care. It's an absolute minimum, and it's a human right. 
So yeah, we're going to be talking about it all year, and it's going to be at the heart of the election this year. We've been speaking with Felicia Cornblue, K-O-R-N-B-L-U-H. Her book is titled A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice, available at your local independent bookstore. Professor, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for your book. Thank you for covering this important issue. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.